Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 21st of September, Andy Wisdom taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Andy takes us through the book of Ephesians. Andy's one of the leaders of Christchurch Manchester and is currently doing a PhD in Biblical Studies. Let's take a listen to the session. Thank you, Andy. All right, good morning. Um, morning. So... There, there are loads of people here who I, who I don't know, which is wonderful, so I'm going to just introduce myself and tell you a little bit about me first. Uh, my name's Andy, um, as, as, as the other Andy said, I live in Burnage, just up the road. Um, I'm, I'm part of the leadership team at, at CCM Fallowfield, part of Christchurch Manchester, um, and uh, I'm kind of, I'm an eternal student, okay, people say that about me. Uh, I did my undergrad uh, four years ago in, in theology and my master's in theology I've just finished, um, but uh, theology is, is a very, very broad term. It can mean lots of different things. Uh, to give you a clue as to kind of what, uh, what kind of things I, I find particularly interesting, I've done a lot of work in the New Testament. I've learned to read Greek. Definitely can't read the whole New Testament in Greek yet. Ask me in a year. Um, but uh, I'm really interested in that kind of thing. I've done a lot of work uh, over the last couple of years as well in kind of Jewish-Christian relations and actually the relationship between modern Christianity and modern Judaism. Uh, I just wrote my master's dissertation on uh, different perceptions of God in Jewish and Christian thought after the Holocaust, for example, so, um, it, which was very interesting. And now, I've, now I'm trying to wrench my mind out of that mode and put it into a mode for the PhD I'm about to start, uh, which is in the letters of Paul and the way Paul speaks about the mind. So kind of looking at intersections between... Paul's letters, psychology, what we understand now to be mental health and, and all that kind of thing. That starts next week. For the last couple of weeks, I've had the privilege of uh, focusing on what we're going to uh, study this morning as we look at uh, the book of Ephesians and the doctrine of the church. It is a pleasure uh, to be here. So why don't, you, uh, why don't you turn with me to the book of Ephesians in your Bible as we, as we get started there. I don't know what your experience of the book of Ephesians is up to this point. Uh, Ephesians is, a, is an incredibly popular book for kind of Bible studies and preaching and all that kind of thing. And I think we're going to find out why as we look at this incredible book today. Um, the way this kind of, the format of this is going to work is for the first session before our first coffee break, you're probably going to hear a lot from me. Okay, I'm probably going to talk for most of that time. Beyond that, as we finish looking at Ephesians and as we look at the doctrine of the church, there'll be a little bit more discussion in our groups. Um, but we've got the privilege here that I don't think you've had the privilege of much over School of Theology of probably being able to get through the whole of Ephesians in an hour, hour and a half. Okay, so we're going to try and cover the whole thing um, in kind of commentary format. Okay, so if you've ever read a commentary on a book of the Bible, you'll know that the commentator will take you through kind of a few verses at a time and give you an overview of what's going on in the sub sections of that book. That's what we're going to do with Ephesians this morning. Um, but before we do that, we need to establish a couple of very important things about this letter. Okay, so um, before we do, just tell you a very short story. 
recently, my, my wife and I went to, uh, went to Dubai, okay, and this was to visit my wife's brother, who moved there um, a little while ago. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, uh, and we went to visit him, and he very kindly, as an anniversary gift to myself and Claire, uh, bought, uh, paid for us to, to take a trip up the Burj Khalifa, okay, the tallest building in the world. Um, Dubai's a funny place. It's only kind of 50 years old, and it's a city of skyscrapers, and it's all on the coast, and it's kind of on a strip. And when you go up the Burj Khalifa, all of these skyscrapers suddenly appear to look kind of small. You see these units from above. It looks very, very different. You get a bird's eye view of half of the city. And the reason I tell you that is because there's something quite unique about the letter to the Ephesians. When Paul, uh, and we're going to have a little think in a moment about the author of this letter. When Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he, he gave us an overview of what it means to be a Christian. Actually, Paul touches in this letter on things that he goes into much more detail on in his other letters. You get a huge amount, a huge number of theological topics in this letter. We get a bird's eye view, uh, and it's incredible. In fact, a lot of the early church fathers saw this as Paul's masterpiece. Okay. Without further ado, I'm going to read the first two verses of Ephesians from the NIV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so you wouldn't expect this early on in a book of the Bible to be met with controversy and debate, okay? And yet, actually, we've already raised some of the biggest matters of debate over the letter to the Ephesians, okay? So uh, those debates concern the authorship, who wrote Ephesians, the audience, who was Ephesians written to, and the purpose of the letter. So let's have a little think about those three things now. So when it comes to the authorship... You may think, well, there's no question over the authorship. Uh, it says that it was written by Paul, and thus it clearly was. But actually, for the last kind of 200 years or so, uh, scholars have been really questioning whether Paul, the, the guy who wrote Galatians and Romans, nobody really disputes that, for example, whether Paul actually wrote this letter as well. And there's a number of reasons that people suggest it might not have been written by Paul. So the, the kind of the format of the introduction isn't one of the reasons. That's typically Paul. Paul always starts with uh, introducing the, his name and the name of perhaps the co-authors um, and then by addressing the people to whom he's writing. I don't need the pen, it's all right. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, it's all good, I'll leave it, honestly. All right, thank you. That's going to become a, a running thing, isn't it? I appreciate that. Uh, and then Paul always uses the phrase grace and peace, okay? There's a slight difference in the phrase in, uh, I think it's in 2 Timothy, somewhere around there, but pretty much all the time he says grace and peace to you. So it's a typical Pauline opener. Yet, actually, there are some things that have led scholars to doubt whether the same Paul who wrote Galatians, Romans, 1 Thessalonians, Philippians, uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians and Philemon, which are called the undisputed epistles, actually wrote this book as well. And those arguments include this. The style of Ephesians is significantly different to the style of some of the undisputed letters. Okay, so for example, uh, it's characterized by these really, really long sentences. Okay, you don't always get that in our English translations. Sometimes we've kind of broken up Paul's long sentences into individual units. But actually, the style of Ephesians is significantly different. To illustrate that, you'll see I've written in your handout that the letter to the Galatians has 2,230 words in 102 sentences. And the letter to the Ephesians has almost the same number of words, 2,400, but only in 64 sentences. Okay? So Paul uses these long, sweeping sentences. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of myself because I'm saying Paul uses them. The author, the author uses these long, sweeping sentences to make his point. 
Okay, it's interesting. There's a bit more than that as well. There's some unique terminology in the letter to the Ephesians that Paul doesn't use elsewhere in his letters. For example, uh, a couple of times in Ephesians, he refers to the devil. In Greek, that's the word diabolos, okay? And he doesn't refer to the devil by that name in any other letter. There are a few things like that that have led scholars to go, oh, maybe this isn't the same Paul. He also doesn't use the Greek word for justification, a very common word in sort of Galatians, uh, particularly actually in, in Romans, okay? He doesn't use that word in this letter. There are also some differences, or, or it's been suggested that there are some differences in kind of the, uh, the theology of the letter. For example, the eschatology. Now, I think you've done eschatology here at the uh, School of Theology, but eschatology means the doctrine of the future. Um, And Paul, in his other letters, talks about this future time when believers will be with God. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about a future time when believers will, you know the phrase, meet God in the air, okay? Or meet Christ in the air. In Ephesians, it appears at times that Paul is talking about a present time when we have been seated with Christ in heaven. So people have suggested that where Paul's got a futurist eschatology elsewhere, maybe he's got a realised eschatology here, something that he thinks has already happened. There's a, something else that you probably know that the letter to the Ephesians is very similar to the letter to the Colossians. Okay? Now there's a little bit of a question mark over the authorship of both of those in New Testament scholarship. And one of the theories that came up is that the author of Ephesians used the letter to the Colossians as a source and kind of built on it. So those are kind of uh, the, these things that give us like a little bit of a question mark over whether Paul wrote the letter. But, on the flip side, there are plenty of arguments for Pauline authorship as well. One of these is the amount of autobiographical material in the letter. On several occasions, Paul talks about himself in the first person. Now, the reason this is, uh, this is kind of important, this is relevant, is because if somebody were to write what's called a pseudepigraphical letter, okay, which is a letter that's written as if it was from somebody else, particularly somebody well-known, like Paul, for example, and they were to uh, talk about themselves in the first person... Well, that would make that a forgery, wouldn't it? If I was writing on behalf of somebody else uh, and kind of writing as if from them and I said, this happened to me, then that would be a forgery. And there's no evidence that actually early Christians would have accepted a forgery into their uh, kind of into their scripture, into their canon. In fact, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of argument on the other side, actually, that they wouldn't have done. They would have rejected something that was a forgery. The other reason, this concerns kind of the style issue that I mentioned, the fact that Paul writes in a significantly different way in Ephesians, or the author of Ephesians writes in a significantly different way to the author of Galatians and Romans, for example, is actually that Paul was a highly educated man. As we learn uh, from the Bible, despite Paul's kind of various protests that he's not the, uh, not the best spoken of, per- of people or all this kind of thing, he's very humble. But actually, Paul claims that he was educated under Gamaliel, who was a very uh, famous and very well-known rabbi, actually, that, that Paul had grown up as a, uh, as a Pharisee, that he was, he was born in uh, the city of Tarsus, which was a very famous uh, city of culture and of learning. Actually, we can assume that Paul was highly educated and therefore Paul could write in multiple styles. Another uh, argument that I, quite, uh, that I quite like is that actually Paul is not restricted in this letter by a single pastoral issue or by a, a particular problem that he's trying to address in a church. More on that in a moment when we think about uh, the purpose of the letter. And of course the argument that it's similar to Colossians is a question mark over the authorship if you think that Colossians has a question mark over it. Whereas if you don't, actually, this just implies that Paul wrote both within a short time of one another. For example, while he was in prison. 
So in conclusion, and you can explore those arguments uh, kind of uh, on your own by all means and go deeper into them and, and read some commentaries. It's very, very interesting stuff. But actually, I don't think there's any conclusive reason to doubt that Paul wrote this letter. As we look at the theology of Ephesians kind of for the rest of this session, we'll see that uh, the way Paul speaks about things like eschatology and things like uh, the doctrine of kind of the body of Christ and that kind of thing, maybe it sounds slightly different to the way he talks about it elsewhere. But maybe he's addressing different things. Maybe he's illustrating it differently for a reason. This was probably written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome when he was under house arrest. So uh, Paul probably had a chain on his leg. He probably had a guard. But he was allowed, uh, people were allowed to come and visit him. And he was allowed to talk to them. Uh, and he was allowed to compose letters and send them and that kind of thing. And it was probably couriered by a man called Tychicus. Okay? Tychicus is mentioned several times in the New Testament. He's probably the person who delivered this letter authorship. Let's set that aside. We're going to assume that Paul wrote this letter. Uh, Audience is the next question mark. Now, uh, all of the translations that we have, uh, there's there's one or two modern English translations that might not have the, the name Ephesians at the top, but the vast majority will. And yet you'll see in your translation of the Bible that when it says to God's holy people in Ephesus, there's a little uh, footnote that says this. Some early manuscripts do not have in Ephesus. Well, uh, up until the kind of mid-1800s, it was just assumed consistently in the church that this was a letter by Paul to a church in Ephesus. Ephesus was known as the kind of the mother city of the the kind of the place that was called Asia Minor. It was a major port in the centre of commerce um, and a tiny bit more on on Ephesians, uh, on Ephesus in just a moment actually. But before we get there, the thing about these, uh, these manuscripts that don't contain the words in Ephesus is that actually three of them are probably our earliest, most reliable versions of the letter to the Ephesians. So it's not just a little question mark over whether this was originally written to the Ephesians or to one, to one church or one group of churches in the city of Ephesus. It's a slightly bigger question mark, actually. Um, so uh, we're not going to go massively into kind of the culture of Ephesians in this session for that exact reason, simply because actually, as we read Ephesians, we'll realise that it doesn't seem like Paul is writing to one specific group of people. Actually, he's got content in here that's supposed to apply to a little bit more than that, potentially even to all Christians. It reads a little bit like a circular letter. Now, uh, I'll address that in just a second slightly more, but... Um, If you do want to know a little bit about Ephesus, and we can definitely assume that Ephesus was one of the major destinations of this letter, then Ephesus, as I mentioned, was the mother city of Asia Minor. It was a big sort of cosmopolitan place, a major port city, a centre of commerce, a centre of trade, and, like many of the other cities to which Paul is writing, a centre of pagan worship. Okay, so there were huge statues of Artemis Ephesia. Okay, and uh, if, and there was kind of worship going on all the time of these kind of these pagan deities. There were statues everywhere. I think in uh, in Tom O'Toole's session a couple of months ago, he said that in Corinth, uh, when you went to the city square, you could uh, you could do shopping or pagan worship. All right, now it's the same actually in Ephesus. They share that considerably. Now. We've touched slightly on the arguments against uh, the audience being simply churches in this city or perhaps greater Ephesus. But the arguments for an Ephesian audience, well, one is that until the mid-1800s, this wasn't questioned. It was simply assumed by all the church fathers, by the reformers, all the way up to the mid-1800s, that until these manuscripts were discovered, that actually this was written to a church or to a few churches in Ephesus. 
And actually, there's, there's a few kind of aspects of the theology in this letter that could potentially apply to an Ephesian context. There's a lot about evil spirits and kind of evil authorities and powers. It's very possible that Paul is addressing kind of pagan worship and what that does in the spiritual realm and how we are to respond to that as Christians kind of in the spiritual realm, if that makes sense. But then again, that was the case in most cities in Asia Minor in, in kind of the Greco-Roman world. So just to conclude, I think there's a strong possibility that the letter to Ephesians was either sent as a circular letter to several churches, and that perhaps one theory is that there was a gap at the top uh, where the city was supposed to go, where the courier would actually fill in the destination, uh, or it's actually equally possible, let's go with this, that actually the letter to the Ephesians was copied and sent to other churches. As we read this letter, we're gonna, it's kind of a gift to us, because it speaks directly to our circumstances wherever we actually are. Um, and I actually don't think the, the question over the exact audience of the letter, particularly as Paul doesn't address specific people uh, or, or kind of specific areas, I don't think it does a lot actually to affect its authenticity, to be honest. And finally, the purpose. Why did Paul write this letter? As I've mentioned, as we're going to see, it doesn't appear to address one particular pastoral or theological issue. Paul doesn't seem to be, uh, you get the impression in kind of in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians, like Paul is trying to kind of fight back against something that's been pushing him back and his gospel back. In Ephesians, he doesn't seem to be fighting back against anything in particular. Paul is starting from, from scratch in a way and he's saying this is what it means to be a believer in Jesus. It's possible that it's addressing enmity between Jews and Gentiles in the church, but again, that was a, a common issue across the whole of the area. Um, and it's possibly addressing kind of issues of spirituality. Um, but actually, what you get here is, as I mentioned at the beginning, an overview, a uh, bird's eye view of Christian theology, particularly in the first half of the letter, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then in the second half of the letter, how that should affect a person's life, how that should affect our lifestyles. It's a highly worshipful letter, in fact, more so than any of Paul's letters, to the point where in Ephesians chapter 2, in a very famous part of scripture, Paul simply interrupts himself to pray, okay, and he prays in the letter spontaneously. It's just incredible. Uh, there are a couple of key themes to pull out, but uh, before I do, I just want to throw this out there. I think Paul would want us to read this letter today and just fall deeper in love with Jesus, to be more in awe of what God has done in Christ, to know more of what it means to be a united body of Christ. I think that's what Paul's going for in this letter. And so a key theme is unity. What does it mean to be one church united in Christ? There's a, a theme of power as well, the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be uh, kind of endowed with, with power, supernatural power? And actually something that I, I haven't written down for you, but actually that I realised as I was reflecting on this is a really key theme as well, is kind of maturity and the journey toward maturity that's kind of, that's going to be a part of our lives as believers. Okay, so let's get into it, shall we? So Ephesians chapter one. So what I've done is I've roughly split well, actually, I've, I've completely split Ephesians into two, first three chapters and the latter three chapters, um, because I think that's, that's one of many ways of dividing Ephesians up. But in the first half of the letter, what you see is Paul explaining what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be called to unity in Christ? What does it mean to be a part of the church? Particularly, kind of, theologically, what does this mean for you? 
And then the latter half, we turn towards issues of kind of behaviour and the way we live our lives. And Paul is saying, this is what it looks like to have what Christ has done for you outworking in your lives. Okay, so another way of putting it, the first half is about what happens on the inside, the second half, what happens on the outside. That would be a little bit too rigid, but a a good, another way of thinking about it. But there's this incredible kind of uh, passage in Ephesians chapter one. I'll get the pen this time Um, and I will put it there. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, uh, where Paul explains to the, to the audience okay, that everything God has done, he has done through Christ. And he gives this incredibly long list of all the things that God has done uh, and explains how all of them have been done through and in Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, it's funny because normally in, in the letters of Paul, um, the thing that will proceed after the greeting is a little bit of thanksgiving. Okay. So Paul will go, uh, you know, Paul, blah, 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 and then grace and peace, and then I always thank God for you because. That's how it often goes, okay? But here that gets postponed because Paul wants to start in the place that's going to kind of draw the whole, leather, uh, the whole letter together, which is this is what it means to have unity in Christ. Everything God has done, he has done through Christ. So if you, uh, if you have a little look at the list I've given you here, I've given you, to be honest, even that's probably a non-exhaustive list of all the things Paul says have been accomplished through Christ here. Effectively, that since the beginning of time, since before creation, God has been orchestrating a plan, all of which was supposed to filter through Christ. That was always the idea. So the preposition en, which simply means in, is used, it's, it's like one of the most common words in Greek, but it's used uh, 15 times before verse 15 in the letter to the Ephesians. Actually, it's used more than that. It's used that number of times to refer to Christ. So this idea of being in Christ, absolutely central to Ephesians. The, the preposition dear, actually, which means through, is only used twice. So in Christ is probably a slightly better translation than through Christ, although en can mean through as well. From creation right until the end of time, God has been orchestrating all things through Christ. In verse 3, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing that God has given to us is through Christ, is in Christ. He is given in Christ. The, our, our election, okay, now you heard a lot more about that when you heard Andrew Bunt a couple of months ago speak about justification and salvation, uh, but the election of us as believers of Jesus accomplished in Christ. Our adoption to sonship accomplished in Christ. The gift of grace that God has given to, uh, to every one of us in Christ. Redemption through blood, the forgiveness of sins through Christ. Understanding what God's will is. This is where it starts to get slightly, perhaps slightly less familiar. In verse 9 it says, uh, He, that is, that is God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So actually the outworking of God's will for humanity, God's will for the world, God's will for his kingdom, is outworked in Christ. In verse 10, Paul says something that's going to be really key to the letter. This is to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So Paul is going to go on to speak about how, uh, as Christians, we should be united in the church. But actually he's saying this is in the context of God is going to unite everything under heaven and on earth in Christ. The gift of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit given in Christ and our inheritance guaranteed in Christ. Everything God has done, he has done in Christ. 
Now let's move on. For the first time out of, out of twice that Paul does this in Ephesians, he turns to prayer. Okay? Now this is what we might expect to have immediately after the greeting, uh, but this is, it, it comes at this point instead. Okay? Paul has postponed the thanksgiving for the Ephesians in order to tell them that God has done everything in Christ. But what's quite crucial here um, is that as Paul prays for the, uh, the church in Ephesians, as he thanks God for them, he doesn't pray that God would give them more spiritual blessings. Paul has already said, every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ. So what he says instead is this, verses, uh, verse, which verse is that? Let's see, verses, is it 15 to 16? Oh no, so uh, it's verse 17. So I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So actually there's this idea that uh, through, through, uh, through Christ we can also have an understanding of God's will. We can have an understanding of the spiritual blessings that God has given to us in Christ. But those blessings have already been given. Paul uh, is effectively saying the power of the Spirit has been given. And he wants us to understand what to do with that power. Actually, what do we, what do, we do with it and what does it mean for us? Okay. Now, it's, it's, it's worth noting, uh, as I read slightly more about that power, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So Paul is saying power has been given to you as believers in Jesus. Okay. That power is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And Paul is saying that he wants, he wants us as Christians to realise what that means. To realise what that power actually is. To understand that power a little bit better. Now, this power is a distinct thing from our inheritance. It's important to recognise that. Paul uses inheritance language throughout his letters. And inheritance is like a kind of a future reality where, God will, uh, where we'll, we'll be with God forever. That's the inheritance, okay? Eternal life, you might say, Okay. It's not the same as the power God has given by his spirit. In fact, uh, the power or, or the gift of the spirit is described as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance. So it's not uh, God saying that now you have the power of the spirit living within you. That's it. That's your inheritance. You're done. It's saying that's simply a taste of what is to come. Actually, that is a guarantee of your inheritance, a deposit. So, and then we get told that Christ has been exalted to heavenly places, very similar to that, that beautiful hymn in Philippians chapter 2, where um, it's saying that Christ has been exalted not just above all things on earth, but actually here we get the first mention of uh, kind of other powers that are going to come in a little bit later in the letter. Verse 21, or verse, yeah, so Christ raised from the dead, seated at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So there's this idea of Christ being exalted, not just into heaven, but actually above all powers, whether they be earthly powers that we can see with our eyes or spiritual powers that we cannot see. Christ has been raised and exalted above all of them. And then we get the metaphor that we're going to come back to as we think about the, uh, the doctrine of the church later on, where we're told that we are the body of Christ, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So we are the church, we are the body of Christ, and he is our highest authority seated at God's right hand in heaven. Paul goes on in chapter 2. To speak about the, the huge change that has happened inside somebody who believes 
in Jesus. Okay, and that change, uh, to illustrate that change, Paul picks two complete opposites and says you've gone from one to the other. And those two opposites are death and life. Okay, so Paul is, is pretty familiar with using kind of binaries in his letters. A binary is when there's two things that are kind of opposite. Okay, and Paul uses binaries like that a lot. Spirit and flesh, you know, slavery and freedom, all that kind of thing. Okay, and here he uses the binary of uh, death and life to illustrate actually what God has done for us in Christ. So in kind of by way of definition, when Paul describes death, he's not talking about a physical kind of death. He's talking about a spiritual uh, sort of state of being dead where somebody is actually ruled not by God, and they haven't given their life to God, but actually they're ruled instead by sin. And here again, we get this kind of idea of spiritual powers, and Paul uses a different phrase here when he says, uh, we were dead, he says you, he's talking in the second person here, you, he said, were dead in your transgressions and sins, following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now that's a pretty strange phrase. We're going to think slightly later on about what, how Paul talks about kind of evil in the letter to Ephesians, but he uses a whole range of different terms. He says actually there's something spiritual about the power of sin over our lives as well. Sin can never simply be understood to be, ah, I did something wrong, silly me, it's, it, you know, and kind of that kind of physical outworking. Actually there's something spiritual about this state of death as well. So Paul speaks there in the second person, and then he begins to speak in the, uh, the first person plural. He goes from saying, you were once dead, to saying, actually, we once followed this life as well. And I think, and, and this is probably just uh, kind of conjecture, but I think, that, um, I think that Paul is saying, you Gentiles and we Jews. Okay, so he's saying, you were once in this state, and actually, so were we as Jews. You know, even though we followed the law, we also still lived among kind of these, these people who were dead in sin, we still, uh, we also followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In verse 3, Paul says this, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, so Paul says, this was the state for you Gentiles. And it's definitely worth noting, by the way, I forgot to mention at the beginning, that uh, Ephesians is predominantly being written to Gentile Christians, okay, non-Jews. But there are plenty of Jews who would have been reading this as well. In fact, Paul addresses sort of Jews and Gentiles in the church slightly later on. Paul says, you Gentiles were dead in your transgressions. But you know what? So were we as Jews as well. Because we also gratified the desires of our flesh. We're all guilty of doing that. See, Paul says something interesting here about the, the flesh, okay? So the flesh, in some translations, is, is uh, the sinful nature, okay? So it's this idea of the things we might want to do that are contrary to what God wants us to do. Um, but actually, Paul says that we followed the flesh, its, uh, its desires and its thoughts. I think that's very interesting. That actually, it's not just the kind of physical passions and urges we might have that can be sinful. It's even our thoughts. It's even our thought patterns, and this is something that, of course, Jesus spoke about a lot as well when he kind of gave those redefinitions of the law. For example, when he said, um, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I tell you, anybody who uh, feels angry against somebody, you know, has, has murdered in their heart. It's this idea that actually indulging the flesh and sin takes place in the mind as well as in the body, which is a, a counter-argument, a deconstruction of the argument that if I feel it, it must be good, right? Paul says that's... That's where you were. That's the state you were in. That's a past reality for you. Here's the state you are in. You've gone from death to life. Life is described in verse 4 as a result of God's love and mercy. 
because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Now again, in the same way that there was something spiritual about the death Paul was talking about, there's something spiritual about this life. You could, uh, New Testament scholars might refer to this as eschatological life, life that is actually going on, life that is going to be constant, life that is going to be eternal, a life that matters beyond when our bodies die, right? That's the kind of life Paul is saying we have in Christ. God's love and mercy brings us from death to life in Christ by grace. Now here's one of those points of interest that scholars have debated over where it says in verses 6 and 7, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is Ephesians 2 verses 6 and 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now it's interesting here, Paul appears to be talking about something that's already happened when he talks about us being seated high with Christ in heaven. Okay? And actually I think the, way, the best way to read this um, is that what Paul is speaking about is a, uh, a future reality that's been presently accomplished. Okay, if that makes sense. So Paul is speaking about something that will, it will happen in the future. I don't know if you feel this right now, but I don't feel like I'm seated next to God, you know, next to Jesus in heaven right now. He's saying this is a future reality, but this is something that's been presently accomplished. Okay, it has been done. He uses the, the tense in Greek, which is called the aorist. Okay, and there's a, a lot of debate over whether the aorist is also always the past or whether actually it can just be translated as simply meaning it's complete. Okay, it definitely means that it's a complete action. So Paul is saying, this is a reality that actually you won't experience yet, but it's been accomplished. Actually, you will be raised to be seated with Christ. And then Paul speaks about grace. And again, some of the most famous verses in the Bible where he says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This was the key verse of people like, you know, Martin Luther, who said that actually you cannot get to God, you cannot uh, reconcile your relationship with God by simply doing good things. You can't do it by obeying the law. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. And this is something that's been planned by God right from the start. Now, of course, we shouldn't confuse good works with works of the law. God has, uh, it says here that God has prepared in advance good works for us to do. Not works of the law, good works. We'll hear a little bit more about what that means later on in the letter. Paul moves on to speak about Jews and Gentiles and their new relationship in the church. Okay. So all across the, kind of the, the known world, as we read it in the Bible, Jews and Gentiles had had a difficult history. Okay? At best, Jewish communities had cut themselves off from Gentile communities. At worst, there'd been a lot of fighting. Okay? And all of a sudden, actually, Jews and Gentiles are in churches together. They're in church meetings together. And this gets addressed in pretty much all of Paul's letters, okay? which is why it's not the most sort of convincing argument that this is definitely going to one church, because this issue of Jew and Gentile relationship is going on everywhere. Okay? But we definitely get in verse 11 that there's been some kind of rift in the church that Paul is writing to, or the churches that Paul is writing to, because he says this, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that, etc., etc. But Paul says, 
effectively, that there's been, t- there's been two groups in the church, okay, you could call them factions, there's been two groups, and one of them has been saying, we're the circumcised, and they've been saying to the others, you're the uncircumcised, and they've been looking down on them. And Paul is about to explain why that's not something that should exist in a church community. Okay. In verse 12, Paul speaks about how previously, in kind of the previous way of doing things, Gentiles had been excluded from the people of Israel. Okay? People of Israel, we're going to think a little bit more about that later on, is, a, is kind of a, you know, in its most literal sense, it means the physical descendants of Jacob. Okay? The people of Israel, uh, you could also, particularly at the time of Jesus, at the time of Paul, refer to those people as the Jews. Okay? So, uh, Gentiles had been excluded from this physical people. Okay? They'd been excluded both uh, kind of spiritually, It says that they were foreigners to the covenant and promise. So it's saying you were foreigners, you were excluded from the promises that God made to a specific group of people. And they were excluded culturally as well. Well, We know this because there were kind of rituals like circumcision and rituals like dietary laws and different festivals where if you didn't participate in these things, then you couldn't be involved in this people group. So actually the Gentiles had been excluded both spiritually and culturally. And here's the best news Paul has for the Gentiles and for the Jews, actually, in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's uh, Ephesians 2, verse 13. So something that Jesus has done in dying on the cross has brought Gentiles into the people of God. This is huge. This is momentous. This is uh, God's people going from being actually a relatively small group to being thrown out to become wider. This is huge. And there's this idea that actually uh, out of two people groups, God has been making one. Now, you heard a little bit, I think, from Andrew Bunt a couple of months ago about the, uh, the new perspective on Paul, which is quite a, a well-known movement from the 1970s onwards, including people like James Dunn and Tom Wright and um, various others, um, Krista Stendhal, various others. Uh, and one of the things that they kind of overemphasize a little bit is the idea that Paul wanted to make two people groups out of, sorry, make one people group out of two. Okay, Um, it's not just the new perspective that overemphasizes that. There's uh, other areas as well. I I read a book recently by a Jewish scholar called Daniel Boyarin, who effectively argues that Paul's entire goal was to create one people group out of two, and that's why he created Christianity. Okay, if you overemphasize that, it goes a little bit far, um, and we can end up in some slightly kind of we can end up thinking that sort of Paul invented Christianity and it was entirely his idea. But what you get here is that actually God intended to make one group out of two. It says that quite explicitly here in uh, verse 15. By setting aside the dividing wall, sorry, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose, that is Christ's purpose, and, and God has done everything through Christ, so God's purpose, was to create in himself, in Jesus, one new, huma- one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So what's come here is uh, not just a spiritual life for those who believe in Jesus, but actually a spiritual peace for Jews and Gentiles in the church, because they are saved by the same faith in Jesus Christ. There's this uh, incredible image here of the temple. We're we're not going to go into this idea, of course, of the law, 
what I'd recommend is if you're, if you're really, really interested in kind of the relationship between the law and, uh, and faith, then read Galatians. That's where it, it, Paul goes into it the most. Um, but of course, what Paul is saying here is that uh, there is no way to get to God by works of the law. Actually, it's only by, faith in, by, by grace through faith in Christ. Um, but uh, I keep losing my place on my page, so that's why I keep pausing. I found it, I found it. Um, so there's this, uh, there's this incredible image in Ephesians chapter 2 here of the temple. Okay, now, uh, it, it's confusing because Paul doesn't use the word temple. And yet when he speaks about a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, it's impossible actually to not have temple imagery in your mind. Because as you, as you probably know, and you've definitely covered this in the Old Testament side of School of Theology, um, in the, the second temple, so the temple that Herod built okay, um, in, in Jerusalem, um, there were literally walls that divided Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so in the, the, the outermost court of the temple, anybody could go in. In the, in the one that was slightly further in, uh, I believe that men and women could go in, Jewish men and women. Uh, then ritually pure men, and then priests, and then the high priest right in the center, in kind of the inner court, and of course the Holy of Holies. So actually when Paul's talking about dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles... They would have known about actual dividing walls that said Gentiles cannot go in here. And so for Paul to say that the dividing wall has been destroyed is powerful language. That actually this idea of coming into God's presence, of being a part of the people of God, is no longer divided by walls. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Now, just, uh, just to go off on a slight tangent, just at the top of Kingsway, which is near where I live, there was this big pub that was derelict and looked, it was an absolute eyesore to look at. Okay? And recently they've been knocking it down. I don't know if you've seen this. But the idea of knocking something down is usually that you're going to build something, build something better in its place, right? So hopefully they're going to build something good in the place of that pub. And actually here what you see is that uh, this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been knocked down and destroyed. But actually in its place, God in Christ is building something better. It says that here in, uh, in verses 20 to 22, uh, 19 to 22. Consequently, you, Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Did I say that he doesn't use the word temple? I lied, I'm sorry. He uses the word temple once. Um, But actually, it's this idea that God is building believers together into a new temple. A temple is the place where God dwells. We as believers are collectively being built into that temple. More on that when we look at models of the church in our second session. Let's have a little look at Galatians, that's wrong, Ephesians chapter 3, and we move on. And after Ephesians 3, I'm going to pause and ask for some questions, okay? So if you've got one, just hold on to it for a couple more minutes. Okay. Okay, so at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul begins to speak about the gift that he feels he has been given to be the apostle to the Gentiles, okay? This is what Paul referred to himself as. Uh, Lots of other people referred to Paul as this as well. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. His job was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to non-Jews. And Paul speaks here about that being a gift for him. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. 
Now, this is important to remember for one of the discussions we're going to have in Ephesians 5, actually, or 4, Ephesians 4. But when Paul uses the word grace, he says, God has given me grace. It's the same word that we might translate as gift, okay? The word is charis. It means kind of a free gift. That's what grace means in Greek. And Paul repeatedly claims that God has given him a gift, that him going around preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is a gift. It's something he is thankful to have. But it's also something that he is uh, kind of given to carry. It's something that he is given to carry and give to the world. Actually, this is to preach the gospel that he has received by revelation. You'll find on several occasions that when Paul talks about how he heard the gospel, he says, I heard it by revelation. He says, Jesus told me this gospel. That's Paul's primary defense for his ministry. He says uh, in Galatians, he says, look, I didn't hear this from other people. This message is from God himself. So Paul gives a little bit of a defense of his ministry here, but it's a lot more positive than perhaps it is in Galatians. It's less of a defense, it's more of an explanation. He's saying, look, this is a gift. I get to go and tell Gentiles that they are included in the family of God. That is wonderful news. The purpose of this gospel, as we mentioned, is to bring Gentiles into the body of Christ. And the purpose of the body... Now, this is an interesting one. I'm going to read verse 10. His intent... God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. As the church, we're going to think more about this later, of course, I wonder what you think our role is as the church. When we think about our role, our purpose, our function as the church, I think generally we think about the things that we do on earth, right? What are our functions? Well, you know, we, we, uh, we preach the gospel to people who don't know Jesus yet. We uh, try to serve uh, the poor. We try to serve our members, all these things. Do we think that there's a purpose for the church beyond this earth? His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There's a purpose for the church. There's something that is uh, a purpose that God has for the church to glorify himself, not just here, but actually in the heavenlies as well. That's a theme that's going to come back. And the result of the gospel, and this is a, uh, similar to language that you find in Hebrews, is just incredible. Paul says this, in him and through faith in him, we may, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's the result of this gospel, that Jews and Gentiles whose faith is in Jesus Christ can approach God with freedom and confidence. You no longer have to have a qualification to go inside the next kind of uh, dividing wall in the temple. We can approach God with freedom and confidence. So, finally, Paul sort of, it, it, it's a funny one, he kind of interrupts himself to pray here at the end of chapter three. Uh, and he just, he, he's been saying, look, I'm, I'm in prison I'm suffering, I'm suffering for you because I'm suffering for preaching the gospel. But don't be discouraged. And then he just turns to prayer. He's so wowed by what he's been writing about God that he has to pray. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And then he begins to pray. And he prays kind of three prayer requests that are are actually incredible. And these are prayers that we should pray over ourselves and pray over one another regularly. Um, And they all start with the Greek word hina, that. That's why we know there are three prayer requests. He prays one, that God would strengthen believers in a self. Okay, what does it say in the NIV? So, may strengthen you out of his glorious riches in your inner being. Okay, 
So uh, we, we may think, I don't know whether we think more about it today or less about it today, but 2,000 years ago in Paul's time, there was very much a belief in the outer self, the physical, and the inner self. We might refer to that as the soul. And when Paul is asking that God would give strength to the Ephesians, he's not saying, and this seems really obvious, but he's not saying that he wants God to give them kind of a physical strength so that they can lift really heavy weights and so that they can uh, persevere and work sort of 22-hour days and all this stuff. He's not asking for that kind of strength. Actually, he's asking for a strength in the inner being. It's, uh, this can inform our reading of verses in the Bible like Philippians, that, that one in Philippians 4 that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Actually, we can use that out of context, can't we, to say uh, that, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and therefore there's nothing I can't accomplish kind of physically, right? We can use that in that way. But actually what Paul is, that, that context of that verse actually is Paul speaking about being satisfied no matter whether he's got everything or nothing. So it's this strength in the inner being that grants perseverance. That's the kind of strength that Paul is asking for here for the Ephesians. Strengthen their inner self. Next, Paul prays that Christ would dwell in believers' hearts. Now, these days we think of the heart as the, 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 the source of kind of emotion. If you've got a broken heart, it means you're feeling very sad. Okay? Well, that kind of thing. If, you, if your heart is being warmed, it means that you're feeling kind of good and happy. But actually, 2,000 years ago, the heart was very linked to understanding and wisdom as well. So there's this kind of link that as Christ would dwell in their hearts... Actually, in our hearts, that we would understand a little more of God's power for us. We would understand a little more of what God has done for us in Christ. Actually, that Christ would dwell inside us and that we would become bearers of Christ. Okay, and, uh, and the third prayer request is that believers would know the unknowable love of Christ. Let me read those verses in verses 18 and 19. I pray that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That's great, isn't it? I pray that you would be able to grasp just how great Jesus' love is. And, verse 19, to know that this love surpasses knowledge. So, to know also that you can't quite know this love, actually. You can't quite grasp it because it's just too great and too unknowable. Paul prays that believers would know the unknowable love of Christ. There's an element here, I think, where we can be so full of the love of Christ that actually it can overflow from us. We can't contain the great love of Christ. Then finally, there's a doxology. Let me just read this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we are, all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Amen. Well, uh, Paul brings together three, um, three words for power in there. He uses the, the verb dunamai, which is where we get our word dynamite, which means to be able to or to have power to. He uses the noun version of that, dunamis, which means power. And he uses the word energeo as, as well, which means to, to work miraculously or to work powerfully. Threes are important in the Bible, and there's kind of this idea that actually uh, God is powerful threefold. God's power for us is just overwhelming. Well, Paul finished that section with an amen, so let's, uh, let's take that cue for, for a pause, and I will ask, does anybody have any questions at this point? Yes. I will ask, so the question was, um, uh, I mentioned good works and works of the law, what's the difference? Let's get to Ephesians 4, if that's all right. Uh, Paul's going to speak a bit more about behaviour that's expected of, 
of followers of Jesus. I think there's a link to maturity. So we'll get... Erin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, let's, when we're in Ephesians 4, hopefully I'll answer your question. That's great. Any more questions? Okay, let's move on. Um, so Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, no, let's not move on. We are going to pause. Uh, serves me right for not uh, checking my watch. Okay, we're going to pause for 15 minutes. Okay, let's gather together. I'm just going to, I'm going to continue with uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Now, as I told you at the beginning, I've divided this, um, this, the book of Ephesians into two sections. The second half we're going to call living up to your calling. What does it mean to live as a Christian? How does this affect our lifestyles? Um, and Paul begins this section... Um, Paul begins this section by reminding the readers that he's a prisoner. Okay? Paul begins by saying, uh, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Okay? Two things to point out in that verse. First, Paul is a, in, in prison. He's in prison in, uh, well, he's imprisoned in Rome, but he refuses to say I'm a prisoner of Rome or I'm a prisoner of the emperor of Rome. He says, no, 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 I'm a prisoner of the Lord. That's why I'm here, because I've been working for the Lord. That's why I'm in prison. Okay? And, and then he says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, in, in the Greek, there's kind of an emphasis on this, because effectively it says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you were called. Okay? So that's called redundancy, and what that means is uh, there's an emphasis on that. There's something special about this calling. Now, in the church today, the popular kind of definition of the word calling uh, might lead you to think about uh, kind of the, the specific things God might have for us as individuals. Uh, what is my calling? You know, what am I going to do with my life? But actually here, Paul is, uh, is definitely talking about uh, the calling of the gospel, the basic calling upon a person's life that means God is calling them to him. Okay, it's the word klaseo, and there's a whole bunch of other references there where Paul uses it in exactly the same way, where he says this is uh, what the calling means. So when he's saying live up to your calling, he's saying live up to the fact that God has called you to follow him, and you've now responded to that call. Okay, so uh, this is kind of reminiscent about the way God speaks about Abraham, the way God speaks about Israel, about calling people for his purpose. And what Paul is saying here is that those who are called are those who are the followers of Jesus. Okay, now if you want uh, kind of a, more of an overview of what the idea of being called by God, responding to the calling, God, uh, God choosing and predestining, then read Romans chapter 28. Go back and listen to Andrew Bunt. Okay, but there's this idea that God calls and we respond. Okay, it's that way around. And then Paul goes on to speak about a bunch of behaviours within the church which bring unity. Okay, so I said a unity was a key theme in Ephesians. Paul's been speaking about how as the church we are all one in Christ. And now he's going to explain what that means for our actual lives. What kind of things do we actually do with our lives? Well, in verses 2 and 3 he says this. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. It's very similar to the language Paul uses in Galatians 5 and 6, exhorting people to unity. If everybody was humble, if everybody was gentle, if everybody bore each other's burdens, we'd have a very united church, right? So Paul is saying, look, you're called to unity. Part of what it means to be called to Christ is to be a united church. Behave in a way that brings unity. And then Paul comes out with what you might call a whole bunch of confessional statements that all begin with the, the number one. Okay? So he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father is all, uh, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, those have been adopted as confessional statements in various creeds over the time, in various denominations. But actually, what you see here is that Paul is relating back to that call to unity. He's saying, look, we should be behaving in a way in the church that brings unity to the church because we have one God, one Father, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all of these things. When Paul speaks, when Paul uses the word baptizo the, the, or whatever the the noun is in Greek. Anyway, the word baptism. Um, He tends to be referring, I think, actually to the baptism of the Spirit. But of course, the baptism, uh, the the kind of adult baptism as as a kind of a believer, we don't want to write that off either. Paul is speaking about one baptism. Knocking pens off is the trademark thing I do today. Sorry about that. Um, But Paul is saying, look, we are called to be a united church. And then he goes on to speak about how uh, if we're a united church, Something that might get in the way of that is when we realise that we're different and that some people have specific gifts that God has given to them. That could potentially, I don't know, that could potentially get in the way of unity. That can kind of breed things like jealousy and envy as we look at other people and think, they're really gifted. Why? That doesn't seem particularly fair. I think that's just one of the reasons that Paul is is about to address uh, the kind of leaders that we might get in the church who are particularly gifted and how we respond to that. So this is part of the reason that we think that, you know, Paul was a highly educated man. He's, he was, if he trained under Gamaliel, then he was very, very versed in how to interpret the Bible. Okay? Very, particularly, sort of obviously, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He really knew how to interpret it. He was good at that kind of thing. And he does that here in, uh, in verses 8. Well, in verse 8. So he says, each, to each one of us, grace. And remember the word grace can also be translated as a gift. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then Paul goes on in kind of an interpretive manner to say, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Paul kind of links this idea of Jesus having descended to the giving of gifts, okay? There's an intrinsic link there. Christ came to earth, another translation below the earth, so Christ's death, you know, as well. There's a link there between that and the giving of gifts to members of the church, okay? It says that God distributes grace or graces or gifts, which is here kind of synonymous with this idea of gifts, I think, and the idea of spiritual gifts, as God determines. They're distributed according to his will and pleasure. We don't actually get a say in that. Okay, it's not based on merit. In verse 7, it says this. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. It's that simple. And then Paul goes on to list a few of these graces or these gifts. And he mentions five distinct types of people. Okay, or potentially four. Okay, so he names uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's possible that the last two are pastor teachers. Okay, so it's either four or five distinct types of people you may meet in the church. Okay, and this has led to a, a whole bunch of debate over the nature of these spiritual gifts, or you might say offices, in the church. What are they for, and what does this list mean? So the main debate is this: Is this a distinct list of five specific gifts, and you kind of you should be identifying with one of them, or? Is it part of an inexhaustive list of spiritual gifts where you you can add in what you find in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12? Is it an inexhaustive list? Well, or is it somewhere in between? Well, I met somebody uh, last year who was, uh, she was part of a a Pentecostal church. Not, I don't want to say the Pentecostal church because it doesn't, um, 
remotely summarise all views, but uh, she said to me that she was feeling like God was calling her to church leadership. Um, And I said, okay, what, what does that look like for you? And she said, well, the first thing for me is to work out my gift. And I said, what? And she said, well, I need to work out if I'm an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, or a teacher. And then I can proceed with being ordained. And I was like, okay, interesting. Um, and and, and it, it kind of struck me that there are still uh, sort of denominations and sub-denominations. That isn't, a, that isn't a belief in the whole Pentecostal church, just to be clear. Um, where actually this, this list is taken out of its context and read extremely literally to the point where it's like if you're not identifying with one of these, particularly if you're a leader, something's a bit wrong. Okay? Whereas I think what Paul is saying here is these are some of the kinds of leaders you might find. And when you find leaders who have these gifts, that is a gift to the church that we should celebrate. Okay, so in defense of it being an inexhaustive list of spiritual gifts, okay, this is kind of added into the list of gifts that you find in Romans 12 and the one you find in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. In defense of that view, well, Paul uses the word charisma in 1 Corinthians and in Romans 12 when he talks about the spiritual gifts. Um, And here he uses the word charis. It's very, very close. Okay, Um, so charisma just means a manifestation of grace. Charis just means a grace. Okay, Uh, so There's a language similarity that means that these might just be part of an inexhaustive list of gifts. Um, And also the purpose appears to be the same. So in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, and in Ephesians uh, 4 here, the purpose of these gifts is designated as this. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, you find a very similar idea. that The purpose of gifts of the Spirit is to build up the church, to build up the body. That's what uh, Paul seems to mean by these gifts. However, in defense of this, this list being a little bit different, being a little bit distinct, well, the first is that all of these gifts appear to apply to leaders. Okay, so you might read the lists in Romans and 1 Corinthians and think, well, the gift of mercy or the gift of serving, uh, that, that, you know, that could, that could be a gift that was given to every, anybody, right? The gift of prophecy, the gift, the gift of tongues. These could be gifts that are given to anybody. These appear to be gifts that are given to leaders and they're described as offices rather than as gifts. So it's not somebody with the gift of prophecy, it's a prophet, okay? It's slightly different. And another reason to think that there's something slightly different, slightly special about this gift is to remember uh, in in, uh, in chapter three, verses one to 13, when Paul spoke about his gift, or you might say his apostolic gift, his apostolic gifting. This was something that was obviously going to build the church. In fact, it was kind of going to, in many ways, kind of found lots of different churches, wasn't it? And Paul spoke about this as a charis, as a gift. Okay? So I think just to conclude on that idea, I think what we're getting here from Ephesians chapter 4 is that actually God, according to his, his perfect will, his perfect purpose in Christ, actually gives leaders with these gifts to the churches. Okay? And when somebody has one of those gifts, we should celebrate it and we should understand that the purpose of the gifts is to build up the whole, to build up the church. And that in itself brings unity. And the purpose of these kind of specifically gifted people in the church, these leaders, is this. It says in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We're going to go on to think slightly more about maturity in just a moment. And, uh, and what uh, Paul is, is effectively saying here um, is that actually this journey toward maturity, which we're all on as believers in Jesus, 
Well, the purpose of church leaders is to guide us on that journey, to help us towards that purpose. Okay? Now, it's by no means an exhaustive list of the qualifications of what it means to be a church leader. If you look in particularly the pastoral epistles, 1, 2, Timothy and Titus, you find a lot more about what it means to lead a church. But that, I think, is what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4. Now, I've got a question for you to discuss with the person next to you. I'm just going to give you uh, two minutes to discuss this, okay? What does it mean to be a mature Christian? Okay, two minutes, go. Okay, so much as I'd be very interested to hear what you all said, we are going to move on um, and I'm, we're going to have a little look at what Paul says about maturity. Um, Paul says a couple of things that may or may, or may not kind of surprise us about maturity. Um, I think often we can think of, we, we can easily link maturity with age, can't we? If somebody's older than us, we kind of assume they're more mature than us by default, okay? But maturity... You may have used words like discipleship, words like holiness, words like, uh, well, I don't know, lots of other words. Um, I think if we, if we were to feed, get feedback from everybody, I think we'd probably find a slight difference in opinion in what we consider somebody, what we consider a mature Christian to be. Okay? And you might simply have thought that it's somebody who's been a Christian longer than you. Maybe that's what uh, kind of you interpreted a mature Christian to be. But Paul speaks about maturity in what I found quite an interesting way in verses 14 to 16. And the first thing that Paul does is he identifies that even he, and Paul is a giant of faith, of course, isn't mature yet. And I think that's very interesting, or isn't fully mature. He says this in verse 14, and the, and the um, first person plural is very important. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul says, actually, maturity, full maturity, is something that I haven't reached yet either. We are, in a sense, still infants who can be tossed back and forth by the waves. And then he references false teaching, doesn't he? And he says, actually, a mark of not being fully mature is when a false teaching that isn't a teaching that's biblical from God when it sways us, when it convinces us, when, it, when we start to believe it instead of believing the word of God. That's a mark of not being fully mature. And I don't know about you, but I experience that all the time. I, I frequently check myself and go, hang on a minute, I've started believing that, maybe just because culture is believing that. And actually, I'm not sure that lines up with the word of God at all. So I know that I haven't reached full maturity, and Paul in his humility here says he is not fully mature yet. In fact, he talks about it more like a journey, actually, when he speaks in verse 15 about growing in maturity. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So actually, there's this idea of maturity being an ongoing journey that we are moving towards collectively as a body, actually, as well as individually. And the idea is that we would grow into our head, Christ, okay? Which is interesting, isn't it? We would grow to become more like, to become more representative by, to become more uh, kind of understanding about what it means to be under the authority of Christ our head. That's what maturity is. And Paul gives a couple of markers about about, uh, maturity as well. He says, look, in verse 14, being mature is marked by being steadfast, particularly against teachings that aren't biblical, that aren't from God. It's marked as well by speaking the truth in love. And it's marked by Christ-likeness as well. Maturity is a future reality which we haven't yet reached, but we're all on a journey toward. Well, in verses 17 to 24, 
Paul begins to touch on this idea of what, uh, to, to kind of address the question that came earlier about works, uh, good works. Paul begins to address more kind of behaviours about what it means to behave like a follower of Jesus. Well, he, he says this about, uh, about uh, well, it's interesting that he refers to people here as Gentiles. We have to assume that he means non-Christian Gentiles. Earlier on, he meant Christian Gentiles, and here he means non-Christian Gentiles. When he instructs the, uh, the recipients to no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Once again, this is, there's this idea of something about faith and something about, uh, about sin actually goes on in the mind as well as in the body. Okay, which is something we have to remind ourselves of, isn't it? Um, but he says this, he says that actually um, the, these Gentiles who are living lives that aren't following Jesus have given themselves over to sin. Okay, he says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Paul says they have given themselves over to sin. Now, if any of the kind of talk about uh, justification and, and salvation is still fresh in your mind, if you've recently read Romans chapter, uh, which one is it, chapter 8, oh, whatever it is, chapter 9, um, uh, chapter, yeah, sorry, Romans 9, then actually, fresh in your mind will be this idea that actually God, the orchestrator of history, actually also hands people over to their sinful desires. It's in Romans 1 as well, okay? This idea might be in your mind that God sometimes hands people over to their sinful desires, You also might have uh, in your mind this idea that actually in Romans, Paul talks about God hardening people's hearts. Sometimes this idea comes from Exodus, uh, particularly when um, it's written about Pharaoh, and sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and sometimes Pharaoh's heart gets hardened by God. On most occasions, Pharaoh's heart just becomes harder. And it's this idea that um, actually somebody's heart can be geared towards not believing in God. But the question is over, well, who does that? Does God do that? Do people do that? Does it kind of just happen? And it seems, and this is one of the reasons that people have questioned Paul and authorship, that here Paul in Ephesians 4 is saying that um, actually uh, Gentiles have handed themselves over to their sinful desires. But I want to kind of counter that by by suggesting two things, okay? One um, is that Paul is trying to illustrate here that actually um, there are two ways of life. There are two choices. You can hand yourself over to God, Give yourself over to God, or you can give yourself over the opposite direction. He says, there's no no in-between. You can't be sort of a Christian. You can't be sort of a follower of Jesus. He says, you've either given your life over to Jesus, or you haven't, okay? And the way of life he's speaking about here is the way of life that hasn't. And therefore, they've handed their life over in the opposite direction. And the other thing is that I think Paul is emphasising something different in Romans, and that actually in Romans 9, his emphasis is on uh, actually God's sovereignty over history, actually God orchestrating history, and how we have to understand that uh, actually nothing happens that God hasn't given the okay to, all right? And I think that's a tough reality, but something we have to understand. And, uh, and then there's, in Ephesians 4, actually, Paul is talking about the sinful tendencies of humanity. And so he's saying, look, these people have given themselves over to sensuality. They're indulging in their flesh. And of course, the purpose here is for Paul to urge the audience not to do the same, to live a life that's worthy of the calling to which they've been called, to choose their new life over the old. And Paul goes, to, goes on to talk about the new self 
Okay, and as we've been thinking about uh, kind of the, the desires of the flesh being a bodily thing and a mind-based uh, thing as well, to do with our actions, our, our urges, and our thoughts as well, it's interesting, I think, that when Paul speaks about putting on the new self in verse 24, he says, sorry, verses 23 and 24, he says, uh, you are to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There's something uh, passive, in a sense, about this, in that Paul suggests that um, it's a little bit, it's very similar language to Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. There's something about uh, the the power of the Spirit in us, the gift of the Spirit, that uh, allows our minds to be transformed, okay? And that's incredible. But there's an active choice here as well. Paul says to put on. He says to have put on. So he's saying you should have put on the new self. That's the idea. You, You should be in a state where you have put on the new self which will make you more like God, in verse 24. To put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then I think this is where Paul begins to speak about the kind of good works that are expected of Christians. You might say the good works that God has uh, prepared for us to do, and this is definitely not exhaustive. But he goes on to speak about behaviours that matter. In verses 25 to chapter 5, verse 7. Paul goes into a kind of a a long talk about about behaviours that aren't fitting for people who've put on the new self, okay? And a lot of it's to do with the tongue and how we use the tongue, but actually there's a general kind of a theme of using what we have for good rather than what we have for evil. One example of that is, um, let me see, verse 28 is a great example of that. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. We might have a a misconception of Paul that he's simply going to tell us to stop doing this, that and the other. But he's not just saying stop doing that. He's saying, look, you can use what you have for good instead. Stop using your hands for evil. Use your hands for good. He says the same thing about the tongue as well and various other things too. There's a verse in, where is it? It's uh, verse 30. It's one where you might have read it before and it might confuse you a little bit. It says this. Well, I'll read 29 first. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. There's a call to unity, isn't, isn't there here? It's kind of, look, don't say things that are, that are unwholesome with your mouth, but say things that build others up. That'll bring unity in the church. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this idea of being sealed for the day of redemption is a reminder of that talk of the the Spirit of God. The power within us of the Spirit is a deposit of our future inheritance, okay? But what about grieving the Holy Spirit of God? What's that about? Can we really grieve God? In Isaiah 63 verse 10, it says this about rebellious The rebellious people of Israel says, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy and he himself fought against them. I think that's the only time that that phrase grieved the Holy Spirit is used elsewhere in scripture. We have to assume that Paul knew that, that he's kind of in a sense quoting that actually. There's this idea that actually we can grieve God, even in our status as people who've put on the new self, even as his children, Unwholesome talk and more generally sin, it says here, is, is actually acts of rebellion against God, okay? And God is our ultimate example. But there's this idea of rebellion that actually 
that God feels, that God can be made upset by actions. And I'm not a, I'm not a parent, okay, so I don't know what it feels like when your child does something that really upsets you. But actually, that's what I'm reading into this kind of situation. Actually, it is still possible to, to upset God with what we do. God wants us to live lives that glorify him. It still, it still affects him when we don't, okay? So, there's this idea of grieving the Spirit of God, which Paul urges us against. He said, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, i.e. all the things that are going to wrench your community apart. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul goes on to speak about love when he's referring to God as our ultimate example. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then Paul goes on to say, and I think there's a relevance here to Paul having just spoken about love. He says, look, love, our ultimate example of what love is comes from God. Here's what love isn't supposed to look like. And he goes on to speak about sexual immorality and those various things which on the one hand can wrench a community apart and on the other hand actually are just behaviours which Paul says, look, people around you, the, the Gentiles who don't believe in Jesus, they're going to be doing this. You're going to be around this a lot. But don't be partners with these people. That's not what's expected of someone who's put on the new self. He says, you are children of light. There's a beautiful metaphor here where Paul talks about the fruit of the light in, uh, in, chapter, in kind of the, the next part of chapter 5, where he says that, look, if something's in darkness, it doesn't produce any fruit. Okay, we recently, uh, I recently left some onions on the, on the side in the kitchen in my house, uh, and the, the sun shone on them, and they like grew extra onions. It was so weird. But w- when light shines on, uh, on a fruit, a vegetable, or a tree, whatever, then actually it grows. Okay, that's kind of just the way it works. It's basic biology, I believe. Um, <laughs> But the opposite of tr- is true when you put something in the darkness, okay? Either nothing grows on something in the darkness or something actually gross, like mold grows on something in the darkness, okay? And Paul is saying that here. He's saying, look, you are children of light. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness. You get the idea of good works that God has, uh, has chosen for us to do. All goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And then he quotes, it's strange here, it seems a bit like Paul is quoting scripture, but this isn't anywhere in scripture. But he says, look, this is why it said, wake up, sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And there's a dual meaning there. One is, look, if you're in darkness, if you're living in darkness, Christ will shine on you and everything will be exposed. There's a warning. And then there's an encouragement as well, because Paul has already said, look, when a light shines on something, that thing becomes a light. One of the words Paul uses for light is a word that was traditionally uh, used for the light that came from the moon. Now, you may well know that actually the moon doesn't shine apart from the fact that the sun is shining on it, okay? The moon doesn't have a light of its, of its own. And what Paul is saying is that when light shines on something, that thing becomes a light in itself. Jesus said, didn't he, to the, uh, the woman at the well, he said, um, he said, anyone who drinks of the living water that comes from me will become a spring. Living water will flow from them. Paul is saying, look, anyone who is... Uh, who, who Christ has shone upon, or anyone who is living in the light, becomes a light in themselves. And he goes on to speak about more behaviours, and there's this, idea that, um, there's this idea that there's an alternative to getting drunk. There's a better alternative. 
In verse 18, he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then, we often leave it at that, but Paul doesn't just say what getting drunk on wine leads to. He says what being filled with the Spirit leads to as well. He says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's debate, which we're not going to go into now, about whether uh, you can be filled sort of with, with the Spirit again, whether that's a one-time thing that happens when you become a Christian, whether what we should understand is kind of a refreshing of the Spirit. But what Paul is saying is this. There are ways of life that are going to seem a little bit fun for a while, but they're going to actually produce things that are really bad. They're going to produce things like debauchery, as he says here in verse 18. But he says, look, there's something better. He says, you can be filled with the Spirit of God, and that can lead to worship. It's a beautiful thing moves on to give instructions to Christian households. And uh, there's, a lot, there's no connective here to kind of join the sections. We can assume Paul is some, starting something slightly new here. When he begins to talk about kind of, uh, he talks about marriage, he talks about children and parents, he talks about slavery. Okay, we'll get to that in just a second. But um, he advocates a model of marriage, which we hold to today in the evangelical church, okay, about between a man and a woman which stresses a wife's submission to her husband's headship. Okay, that's the model of marriage that Paul portrays here. And, of course, a husband's sacrificial, for his life, for, uh, sacrificial love for his wife as well. Now, this plays a role that's exemplary, and we're going to look at this again later on as we think about what it means to be the bride of Christ. But Paul says, look, the whole point of a marriage is a privilege to be able to illustrate the model, the, the, the relationship between Christ and the church. This is a great mystery, but what do marriages point to? Well, they point to the relationship between Christ and the church. There's obviously more to it than that, but let's move on. He talks about how children should obey their parents. Now, it's interesting, in the traditional uh, Church of England marriage vows, there's, um, there's of course, the, 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 the bride and the groom say the same vows, except that the bride will say to love, honour and obey. Okay, but interestingly, in this, in this text, actually, it never says that the wife should obey her husband. It just says she should submit to him, she should respect him. Just a point of interest. Um, but children and slaves are both told to obey their parents or masters, okay? So Paul is speaking here about obedience. He says children should obey their parents for two reasons. One, because it is right, okay? He simply says, do it because it's right. And two, because it actually benefits them. He says, look, if you obey your parents, actually that's going to come back to you. That's going to be a good thing for you. So the purpose is actually that the, the, uh, the, the unity that's created by these attitudes is going to bring benefit to the church as a whole, okay? So Paul is clearly writing to a church or churches that had, uh, that had husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters all in the same room, worshipping the same God, attending the same services, okay? And Paul's addressing that here, and he says this about slaves and masters. He says, slaves, obey your masters. Is Paul advocating slavery, or is he advocating what we might understand today to be slavery? Well, absolutely not. Is he advocating a form of slavery that existed 2,000 years ago? Well, I like what Tom Wright says about this. I think it's helpful. He says this, Paul could no more envisage a world without slavery than we can envisage a world without electricity. Slavery was built into the fabric of Roman society. If Paul thought that slavery needed to be abolished, he didn't say it. But what he says here is that slaves should obey their masters. That actually that's the way of imitating Christ in their lives. But of course, he puts this in as well. Where is it? What does he say to masters? He says, 
Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. It says, look, slaves obey your masters. Masters, treat your slaves well. This is how we imitate Christ in a church. This is how the church is brought to unity. Okay, let's finally look at the, uh, a very famous part of scripture in chapter 6. The armour of God, I've called it preparing for war. Someone asked me a question in the break about what kind of, what's, what's, this, what's this idea of the power of God within us? What's the, what's the purpose? What do we do with this power? Well, I think here is where Paul addresses that most clearly in Ephesians. He says this in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. There are many reasons, I think, that we are filled with the Spirit as believers. Part of it is so that we can move toward maturity, so that we can live lives that glorify God. I think that's definitely the purpose of the passages about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, for example. Part of it is actually to be able to take our stand against the devil's schemes. There is something beyond what we can see with our eyes. There is something beyond what we can see in front of us that we engage in as followers of Jesus. For our struggle, Paul says... It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God. If you just flip over to the final page, we'll go back to the, uh, the commentary in a moment, but you'll see that Paul speaks about evil in a whole host of different ways in Ephesians, okay? Now, I've given you a, a bit of a... I've kind of overdone the list to give you kind of anything that may refer to kind of this idea of evil. But the point is this, Paul has been laying down again and again in the letter that there are going to be things that we need to battle against as followers of Jesus that we can't see with our eyes. Things beyond the physical, things that we might not fully understand. But there's good news. God actually equips us to deal with those things. God equips us to address them. God equips us to fight. Okay, so, uh, for example, you know, you've got the authorities and powers in this world. Whenever Paul uh, talks about authorities, there's a couple of occasions in the New Testament where authorities means like, you know, kings and um, kind of, uh, yeah, other kind of people with earthly authority. But actually often, particularly when Paul talks about authorities, he's speaking very negatively about spiritual authorities. Okay, he speaks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He speaks about the flesh because that comes from, he says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air in chapter 2. Um, deceitful men. And the reason I include that is because uh, when Paul says you can take your stand against the devil's schemes or strategies, he uses the word methodea, which is what's also used for the strategies of deceitful men earlier on in uh, chapter 4. Paul even says the days are evil. He says we live in an age that's actually characterised by evil, but that that age is going to come to an end. He, says, he mentions, of course, the devil. He says, don't give the devil a foothold in, verse, in chapter 4. And he says, you can take your stand against the devil's schemes in chapter 6. The evil spirits in the heavens, chapter 6, verse 12, and the evil one. And Paul often refers to the devil as the evil one or as Satan in his other letters. Let's pop back to the commentary. I'm just going to finish by... Mentioning what God is saying is feasible in the power of the Spirit and with the full armour of God. Well, I think there's a, a reason Paul says, therefore put on the full armour of God. He's saying, don't just pick up the shield, don't just put on the shoes, put on the full armour of God and then you'll have, uh, the best, um, you'll, you'll have the best ability to take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
And there's a command, isn't there, to put on the full armour of God. It uses the same Greek verb, enduo, which simply means to put on, to dress yourself with, as he used for the new self. There's a link between putting on the new self and putting on the armour of God. Is this something we are encouraged to put on once or repeatedly? Well, I think the answer is repeatedly. The verb verb definitely implies that it's something we're to repeatedly put on, actually. The armour of God to take our stand against the devil's schemes. We, we won't have time to go into each one now, but I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to make this part of your regular devotional because this is how Paul says we address the powers that we can't see by living in the power of the Spirit, by putting on the armour of God. And finally, Paul says, and this is why I encourage you to include it in part of your devotional actually on a regular basis, is that Paul says prayer is foundational to the armour of God. After he describes the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, the word of God, he says this, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Prayer is foundational to this. There's a link between putting on the armor of God and prayer. In his final greetings, Paul mentions Tychicus, who I mentioned earlier was probably the... um, was probably the courier of the letter. He may have been its scribe. Uh, Paul usually used a scribe. Um, But he's the only person Paul mentions personally. And there's a slightly vague kind of close to the letter. Compare it with some of the others and you'll see that. But um, what I think is, is incredible here is that actually Paul has gifted us this letter, which is vague enough actually in terms of the people it's addressing, that we can read it today and we don't need to worry massively about context. So like, this means something to me as a Christian today, and that's wonderful. Um, not that context isn't, of course, important. It is. But that's the reason we haven't gone too far into 